Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you tonight. And uh, why don't we open with a word of prayer and we'll get into our study. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, in Jesus' name, and we pray you would take this study into your mighty hands and use it for your glory. We pray, Lord, you'll bring it forth this evening in the power of your spirit and give us grace to understand and the ability to apply these things into our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new with us, we are studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday night. So if you turn there, we are going to be in chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. Now, let me just say another time, because we've said it before, but uh, tonight we come to the second of three major sections in the book. Remember, the outline for the book is given to us by the Lord Jesus himself in chapter 1, verse 19. When he said to John, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And so the things that you have seen is chapter one, the vision of Jesus. And now we enter into the second section, the things which are. And that's in chapters two and three, which are the things of the church or the church age. When most people think of the book of Revelation, they think of chapters 6 through 19, of course, because uh, those chapters deal with the prophetic judgments that God's going to bring upon this wicked, Christ-rejecting world. As Christians, uh, of course, uh, those chapters really don't apply to us at all. I mean, uh, if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, as I do, that the church is going to be raptured out of here before the tribulation period starts. Uh, so with that in mind, of all the chapters in the book, chapters 2 and 3, uh, are far more practical and uh, meaningful for us who know the Lord, who are members of his body, his church, uh, than, you know, the whole bulk of the book that deals with all these cataclysmic judgments and various other things. They make for kind of exciting reading, but they don't have anything to do with the church. So that's why I really want us to focus over the next few weeks on the uh, the things of the church, chapters 2 and 3. And uh, because uh, they are the most spiritually rich uh, and beneficial to all of us. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Why these seven? As we have pointed out before, there were other churches that were larger and more important. Why did the Lord pick these seven to address these letters to? Well, it was because these seven churches contained conditions that, listen, could be applied both spiritually and practically, allowing Jesus to use them to address his church, you know, his church as a whole throughout history, all right, uh, to address his church in a way that would be beneficial to all of us, uh, help us to gain, uh, to become more pure and uh, to grow and uh, going forward. Uh, as we, of course, um, you know, find ourselves at the end of the church age. Well, these letters were dictated at the beginning of the church age, but they had application to our lives in different ways. Now, let me go through these. First of all, these seven churches had a local application. They were real churches, all right? Real churches that existed at that time in the first century. And uh, these letters were addressed to them by the Lord as a kind of report card a kind of report card to show each of them how they were doing in his sight. So they had a practical application for those seven churches back there in the first century. 
but these seven churches have an historic application as well. These seven churches, in a symbolic way, speak to different periods of church history, from the apostolic period, the first century, uh, to the rapture, which we don't know exactly when that's going to happen, of course, but uh, we know that will close the church age period. Um, and therefore, the order they appear in in chapters 2 and 3 is significant. You know, from a practical standpoint, understand, these seven churches were on the postal route, which was a circuit uh, in that area. And uh, they did, in that regard, they did follow geographically in this order. Um, and yet, as we study them, they symbolically represent the historical church throughout the entire church age in this order. Let me explain. One author puts it this way. He says, and I quote, Ephesus, the church of the first century, was generally praiseworthy, but it had already left its first love. Smyrna, from the first to the fourth century, the church suffered persecution under Roman emperors. Pergamus, during the fourth and fifth centuries, Christianity was recognized as an official religion through Constantine, the emperor Constantine's patronage. Thyatira, from the 6th to the 15th century, the Roman Catholic Church largely, largely held sway in Western Christendom until it, until it rocked, excuse me, until rocked by the Reformation. Uh, in the East, the Orthodox Church ruled. Sardis, the 16th and 17th centuries, were the post-Reformation period. The light of the Reformation soon began to dim. Philadelphia, during the 18th and 19th centuries, there were mighty revivals and great missionary movements. And then Laodicea, the church of the last days, is pictured as lukewarm and apostate. This is the church of liberalism and ecumenism. Now, guys, with that in mind, it's interesting that the first three letters indicate from what Jesus says to them that they wouldn't survive to the end of the church age. They wouldn't survive. Give me, give me an example. He said to the church of Smyrna, be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. So these first three were not going to survive to the end of the church age. However, the last four letters uh, end with the admonition by Jesus to hold fast till I come or until I come or get right because I'm coming, indicating that these last four would exist together in the last days and would be on the earth at the time of the rapture. Now, I won't leave you in suspense. I will tell you what I believe these last four letters represent, the churches they represent, the Roman Catholic Church the Protestant church, the evangelical church, and then the liberal church. And we'll see this very clearly as we go through each of these. Number three, these churches have a timeless application. They speak, listen, to all churches in all ages and in all places throughout the world. Each church having its own distinctive character. So Ephesus is the loveless church. Smyrna is the persecuted church. Pergamus is the compromising church. Thyatira, the idolatrous church. Sardis, the dead church. Philadelphia, the faithful church. Laodicea, the apostate church. 
Number four, they all have, these seven churches have a personal application. This is what makes it so relevant to us, I believe. Look, we are the church of Jesus Christ, not the building. We are the church of Jesus Christ. These letters in that regard are a mirror, a mirror that every Christian should look uh, should look into from time to time and use to examine our own individual walk in relationship with the Lord. Is my walk with him loveless? Is it compromising? Is it dead? Is it faithful? Etc. So we can use each of the characters of these seven churches and we should from time to time look in uh, at them as a mirror and, and, and ask the Lord, is my walk reflecting any one of these? Hopefully it's the faithful church of Philadelphia, but I think at any given time we can have maybe elements of almost all of them going on in our lives, which we need to constantly examine ourselves. Now let me give you the structure of the letters, these uh, seven letters. They're, the structure remains constant. It's the same thing, all right, throughout each of the seven letters. First you have the commission. Each letter opens with the name of the individual church, the meaning of each church name is significant. We'll see that as we go. Next, the character. Each letter is followed by a title that Jesus chooses to call himself by, which comes right out of the vision of himself in chapter 1, which is also meaningful and relates to something that Jesus sees going on in that particular church. In other words, it's character. Number three, next is the commendation. Because after the, uh, the, the commission and the character, next comes the statement, I know your works, which leads to a commendation as Jesus points out what is positive about each church. The letter to Laodicea is missing this. There was nothing positive about that church. Next, you have the condemnation. First, the co commendation, and now the commendation, the excuse me, condemnation, where Jesus points out what is not good in these churches. The letters to Smyrna and Philadelphia are missing this. They're not condemned in any way by the Lord. Then you have the correction, where Jesus pinpoints specific problem areas in each church, again, except for Smyrna and Philadelphia, and uh, gives correction to those other five that need to be corrected. Then you have number six, the call, which is an exhortation by the Lord Jesus to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Implication being, and stop the bad and strengthen the good. And then finally is the challenge. And basically the challenge to each of the seven churches is to overcome, to overcome. And uh, he includes a special promise for those who are faithful and do overcome. Uh, the overcomers, all right, we'll talk about that when we get to uh, our first letter to the uh, Church of Ephesus, which we're going to get to right now. This covers verses 1 to 3. Hopefully we'll get through this one tonight. I think we will. And so the Church of Ephesus, uh, subtitled the Loveless Church. Verse 1, to the angel. Remember, that's a reference to the uh, senior or lead pastor in each of the churches to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now that brings us to what uh, I've called the commission. The commission. Each of these churches obviously have been commissioned by the Lord, as all Christians have, to go into all the world 
and preach the gospel and serve the Lord and so on. Uh, but it does get into the individual personality or background of each of these churches. So let me just give you uh, the background of the church of uh, Ephesus by starting with the actual city of Ephesus. The uh, Ephesus as a city was the most important city in Asia Minor. Its population in New Testament times was estimated to be, to be between 250,000 and 500,000 people, so it was not a small town. It was a city. Ephesus was a free city, uh, and that meant that they were self-governing within limits um, because they had earned that right from Rome because they were loyal, very loyal. And uh, it meant that Rome pulled out its troops. There was no Roman garrison there in uh, Ephesus because, again, it held a kind of a favored status because it was so loyal to Rome. So they rewarded these cities by letting them have a measure of uh, autonomy to govern themselves. The troops pulled out, so there was not really a visible military uh, presence there. Uh, the city hosted athletic events, very big into athletics. Uh, some of these uh, athletic events rivaled the Olympic Games. It was an inland city, although it was three miles from the sea, but there was a river called the Castor River that ran uh, all the way to the city of Ephesus from the sea and afforded Ephesus what was called the, um, the um, greatest harbor in uh, Asia Minor. All right. So even though it was three miles from the sea, you had the Castor River that went from the sea uh, to the uh, town of Ephesus and uh, gave them a tremendous harbor. This allowed them to be a very commercially uh, centric kind of a town. Uh, in fact, um, uh, I am told that four great trade roads uh, went through Ephesus. And, you know, because ships would bring cargo into the port and then uh, merchants would take it uh, all over the known world, north, south, east, and west. So it became a real commercial hub. That's why it became so popular, so famous and prosperous. But... Um, it contained, excuse me, it, 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 four great trade roads went through Ephesus, therefore became known as the gateway to Asia. It contained a theater that seated uh, 200, excuse me, 25,000 people and uh, had a library, world-class library that boasted uh, 200,000 volumes. So it was a, a good-sized library. It was the center of worship. Uh, the goddess um, Artemis, which, who the Greeks, you know, the Greeks called her Artemis. The Romans called her uh, Diana. Uh, you remember Diana of the Ephesians in the book of Acts? Uh, the uh, temple to Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would come all, from all over the known world just to see the temple of Diana, buy a little few gifts in the gift shop, you know, some of these little carved images of Diana. Of course, Paul put a whole wrench into that deal when he went there and got so many people got saved, they stopped buying uh, these little trinkets and things, and that created quite an uproar. You can read about that in the book of Acts. Um, Paul ministered there for three years, longer than any other place uh, during his ministry. You can read about that in Acts 20, verse 31. And later, Paul met with the Ephesians, Ephesians, uh, Ephesian elders when he was on his way to Jerusalem. Read about that in Acts chapter 20. And finally, Timothy and the Apostle John both served this church as pastors. So that brings us to the character. The character of this church, Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, guys, as we have said, we studied chapter one. Uh, this speaks of authority. But listen, the authority uh, that a loving husband has for his uh, over his wife. It's uh, yes, authority, but the loving authority of a husband over his wife. Think of it this way. As Jesus is holding these seven stars in his hand, speaking of the church, him holding the church, that's a nail-scarred hand. One of those hands that was nailed to the cross as Jesus died for his bride, the ultimate act of love for uh, your wife. When a husband dies for his wife, Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, guys, that sets the kind of the imagery. The imagery is going to, this imagery, I should say, is going to set the tone and act as the theme of this letter. Jesus loved relationship with his church uh, and symbolically with all of his churches throughout the entire church age. Verse 1 again, the latter part, these things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, listen, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We learned in chapter 1, verse 20, that these seven golden lampstands represented these churches, or represented the church uh, in general. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, that the church was the light of the world. Of course, we individually as Christians are the light of the world as well. He said that to his disciples who later on became part of the church or made up the church in the beginning. It was made up of only Jesus' disciples initially, but then it's, it grew. But um, it's interesting that the seven golden lampstands, uh, sources of light, are representative of the church. And so here, guys, we have a picture of Jesus walking in the midst of his church and saying, I know everything going on with absolute clarity. Now, that can either bring comfort or discomfort to a Christian or a church, depending on what is going on in that Christian's life or what that church is involved in. So just very, impor very important we understand. And we know from Hebrews 4 verse 13, that uh, all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must one day give an account. Remember that. Jesus sees everything going on in our lives, in our churches, and even in our hearts. So uh, we're not fooling anybody. We're playing games. Let's get it right. Let's make it real, okay? Next we see the commendation. Commendation. Verse 2, Jesus said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Let me stop there. <clears throat> to begin with, this was a serving church, busy doing the works of the Lord. No doubt their week was filled with all kinds of ministry activities and outreaches and, and, uh, and helping the community in some way. They were not a couch potato church is the idea. Secondly, it was also a sacrificing church, for the word labor means to toil to the point of exhaustion. So these people were really, uh, it cost them something uh, as they were serving the Lord. They served with all their hearts. They served to the point of exhaustion. It wasn't just a little bit here and there. They were all in. Their heart was totally into serving the Lord. Number three, they were a steadfast church. 
because the word patience here in the Greek carries the meaning of endurance under pressure or trial. In other words, they kept going when the going got tough. They weren't a fair-weather group of believers. This church was a tough church. Uh, they had persecution, a lot of uh, opposition, but they uh, they toughed it out. They kept going. They didn't waver. They didn't give up and, and quit. Also, they were a sanctified church, we read here, uh, in the sense that they did not tolerate evil practices or evil people in their fellowship. I mean, holiness was important to them. So listen, they exercised church discipline. Now, this is important. I want to just talk about this for a minute. This was a healthy church. Why were they a healthy church? Because they practiced church discipline. They practiced church discipline. A healthy physical body has a functioning immune system, and so does a healthy church body. We all know what AIDS is and how it works. When AIDS invades the human body, the first thing it does is attacks the, the, it attacks the body's immune system and shuts it down which leaves the body defenseless to invading diseases, which eventually weaken and kills the body. AIDS doesn't really kill you. It just so weakens a physical body that uh, pneumonia sets in or some other thing. The body can't fight off. It's too weak, and the body dies. Now, look, the body of Christ, I believe, has given itself a spiritual case of AIDS, which some have defined as acquired ignorance of doctrine syndrome. The church has given itself a case of AIDS. How? By neutralizing its defense against spiritual disease, false doctrine. We are to be guarding against false doctrine vigilantly, uh, you know, uh, constantly. When the church does, but the church for the most part is not doing that today. It is not defending against spiritual disease or false doctrine. Uh, how is it? Why is it not? What is going on? It Because it's ignoring the command to test all things and to hold fast to that which is good in the name of unity and a misguided concept of love. Today in the church, love means that we don't, uh, we don't call anybody out. We don't challenge anybody. Uh, we just embrace everything. Okay, we're all, you know, servants of Christ and, you know, it's wrong and it's unloving to challenge people and and I guess hold them accountable. So the church, for the most part today, is not testing all things and holding fast to that which is good. What does that mean? Test all doctrine. How do you do that? Against the Word of God, God's truth. You test all doctrine coming into the church against the truth of God, and you hold fast to what is good, what lines up with God's Word, is beneficial then to the body, and you reject what is not good, what is not of God, Right? That's what we're commanded to do. If a church does that faithfully and continually, it will be a healthy church because its immune system, quote-unquote, will be functioning properly. But often that's not the case today. I want to just mention something else before we move on. Notice that Jesus commended them for their intolerance and not for their tolerance. Today it's backwards. Today many churches are being commended mostly by the world, for being tolerant if they embrace things that God's called sin in his word, you know, abortion, which is murder, or homosexuality, and gay, uh, gay marriage, and transgender issues, and, uh, and the people living together outside of marriage, and so on. Uh, the world praises that. 
if you act like the world, the world will love you. All right. And so there's a lot of churches that don't want to take the heat. I guess they want to be man pleasers and uh, and have a good reputation in the community. And so you see them, they're flying the uh, the, the the gay flag and and on the marquee out in front, it says, you know, you know, we love everybody. And well, evangelical churches love everybody, too. Uh, but we don't love people if we embrace their sin and, and say you're fine. We love them by saying, no, this is wrong. Uh, this is not of God. This will send you to hell if embraced and practiced. But the world commends churches that embrace things that God says are evil. And they uh, condemn as intolerant those churches uh, that reject the practices that the world itself loves and so on. Um, but we who are good, solid churches uh, are, are abandoned intolerant for rejecting these practices and for calling them what God calls them evil. That's what God says in his word about abortion, murder, homosexuality, uh, sex outside of marriage, and, and many other things that the culture embraces as good. As a nation, we have entered into that phase that the Bible talks about that precedes judgment, where people are calling good evil and evil good. But as Christians, we must call good good, as God defines in his word, and evil is evil, as also God says in his word. But look, tolerance is a big thing today, and a lot of churches want to uh, be looked upon as uh, tolerant churches, because uh, I guess in that way uh, they, they feel they uh, are, are being a light uh, in the world. No, they're not being a light. Uh, I'll give you the Church of Corinth. The Church of Corinth was a very tolerant church. They prided themselves uh, on being a very tolerant church. Paul mentions this in his letters to them. Uh, but as such, being very tolerant, quote-unquote, the result was that they were a very sick church full of sin, full of sin. Look, any church that is unwilling or unable because it is too sick and weak to purge itself of the evil within it is a church that will eventually die, just as any human body that is too weak to purge itself from the toxins that have invaded it will also go weaker and weaker until it finally dies. We are commanded in Scripture to practice church discipline. I'll read you two scriptures, Titus 3, verses 10 and 11, where Paul said, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So reject, take, put, put out of the church. Oh, that's so unloving. It's not unloving because if you leave leaven in the church, it will spread until the whole church is leavened or corrupted. Also, Romans 16, verse 17, Paul said, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Revelation 2, verse 2. Jesus is going on commending this church. He said, And you have tested those who say they are apostles and they're not apostles and have found them to be liars. And again, I draw your attention to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, where we are commanded to test all things and hold fast that which was good, uh, or that is good, or what is good, I should say. Uh, how do they test these 
people that went around calling themselves apostles. Well, they tested what they taught against God's truth. And of course, those who were really of God uh, as apostles, they would teach God's truth. Those that were phony apostles were liars, deceivers. Of course, they would not teach God's truth. It all comes back to the word of God as our tester. But guys, 35 years earlier in the book of Acts, chapter 20, Paul admonished these very same believers. Well, some of them had probably died, but this very same church, Ephesus. He said, and I'm going to quote from Acts 20. Uh, this is verses 25 to 31. Now, this is 35 years earlier. Here what Paul said, here's what Paul said to the Ephesian elders um, who took this back to the church uh, when they went back after they had gotten done uh, visiting with Paul. But while he was with them, he said in verse 25, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now 35 years later, after he gave them this uh, admonition, they're still doing pretty well. They're still doing a pretty good job of watching out for evil imposters and uh, tossing out those who were involved in sin and refused to repent. So they had remained pretty faithful in that regard. So that was something that was commend, uh, you know, something that Jesus commended. The, the commendation continues in verse 3. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So the Lord Jesus commends them for enduring hardships and for not growing weary over the years. Wow, they were faithful. They persevered. Uh, 35 years uh, from since the last time they were addressed uh, by Paul, uh, Jesus is now giving them a little report card. And uh, he says that uh, I commend you that you uh, endure hardships for my name's sake that you have uh, not grown weary in serving me. And again, the, uh, in general, this church had continued in faithful service to the Lord for the last 35 to 40 years. And then Jesus adds a final commendation in verse 6, when he said, but this you have, something else good going on in your church, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, Bible students, some of them, believe this was a reference to a sect called the Nicolaitans, although history doesn't contain any record of a, group, of a group called by that name. Perhaps the word Nicolaitans doesn't mean a group or a sect, but the meaning is in the word itself. It comes from two different Greek words that literally mean to conquer the people or those who rule over 
God's people. I believe it's a reference to church leaders who sought, listen, not to serve the people, as Peter said we must do as elders in 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 1 to 3. But uh, I believe this is a reference to church leaders who sought not to serve the people of God in their churches, but to rule over the people as some kind of lords. These were pastors, and instead of being good shepherds who uh, uh, led by example and who served the people of God, no, uh, they saw themselves as over the people in the sense that they were the lords. Uh, there's even something that uh, has gone through the church uh, at different times in its history, something called shepherding, where pastors are looked upon as the lords over their flocks, so the kings, they uh, they control them. The people have to uh, get their permission to do pretty much anything. And um, that's what I believe the term Nicolaitans actually refers to. It refers to a, a group of people that um, initiated what we call today the clergy and the laity, which, guys, is a false distinction and hierarchical order where some are deemed in the church closer to God than others and therefore have access into the presence of God while other Christians do not because they are not as holy, they're not as worthy. And, guys, that's something that is taught nowhere in the New Testament, this hierarchy where some people, leaders, are closer to God than others and therefore are worthy to come into His presence, uh, but you're not, because you're not as holy, you're not as close to God. They'll go into the presence of God for you, but you can't, really. Uh, not like they can. And uh, if this is what's going on, Jesus said, I hate it. I hate it. This was, in fact, the system I grew up under, the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman Catholic Church, this hierarchy was very visible. You had some who were, you know, the priests, of course, and the bishops, cardinals, up to the pope. Uh, you know, some of these were the magisterium. Uh, they were so close to God, only they could interpret what God's word was actually saying, and they would tell you, because you weren't holy enough. You weren't close enough to God to be able to read the Bible and know what God was really saying. That's how they controlled uh, Catholics for centuries, because uh, they refused to let them read the Bible. They kept the Bible in a language they didn't understand, uh, Latin and other languages. And those who tried to translate it into English were uh, burned at the stake or martyred in some other way. Uh, but this, this system where, you know, you have some that are closer to God than others, and uh, they will go into God's presence for you. Uh, but you can't because you're not worthy. Jesus said, I absolutely hate that. I died so that every believer in me has access to the Father. That no, no one is more worthy than anyone else. Everyone is worthy to come into God's presence through my blood that I shed on Calvary's cross. Read about this in Hebrews 10, 19 and many other places. Every believer has equal access to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, anyone who tries to put themselves in the church above the others and say, oh, we're, we're more holy, we're more special, and we have access into God's presence in a way that you can't have access. Jesus said, that's an abomination, that's heresy, I hate it. So far, so far, I guess, so good, right? It sounds like this was the perfect church in many ways, or so it seemed. But remember, Jesus is looking at the heart in these letters. That's really what's going on. He's not concerned with superficialities 
no matter how good they are as far as serving God with all your heart to the point of exhaustion, that's good stuff, it's good stuff. But uh, it's surface stuff. The Lord is wanting to look into the heart. That's what he's doing. And so from the uh, commendation, we now move to the condemnation. Verse 4, nevertheless, ooh, very ominous word, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. It seems that all these positive works of service were being negated by one negative. They were going through the motions, but they had lost the emotion in their relationship with Jesus. As I have said before, let me say it again, their church was a well-oiled machine, cranking out a lot of ministry stuff, but God doesn't want machines cranking out emotionless service. He wants a, a love relationship with his church, with his bride. Remember what Jesus said? He said, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Not that you serve the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And notice, guys, he doesn't say this church lost their first love. He said they left their first love. This was a conscious act of departing on their part. And no, it didn't take place all at once. But like the slow drifting off course of a ship at sea, it happened slowly over time. In Weymouth's New Testament translation of this passage, it reads, Yet I have this against you, that you no longer love me as you did at first. What is first love? It is the passionate love for Jesus that often characterizes the new believer. The new believer. It is, the, I, it is the I can't think of anyone else kind of fervent love that newly, newlyweds have for each other. In a word, it is honeymoon love. And while it is true that married love does deepen and grow richer over time, and that's very beautiful, it is also true that ideally, ideally, it should never lose the passion of those honeymoon days. You know the word Ephesus, what it means? Mary said each, the, each church's name was significant and had um, uh, something to do with what was going on in that church. Do you know what the word Ephesus means? Talking about this church that left its first love, its honeymoon love. The word Ephesus means darling or desired one. They were still desired by the Lord but he was no longer desired by them, is at the beginning of their relationship with him. Guys, this also happened with Israel, as you remember. A cooling of their love for the Lord that uh, he lamented through the prophet Jeremiah when he said in Jeremiah 2, verse 2, I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. Well, if you read that whole passage, God said, my heart is broken. I remember the days of old when we were, you were first betrothed to me, 
how you love me so much you were writing my name, you know, on the tent flaps of your, you know, of the, on the flaps of your tents and on the horse's bridles. It's kind of like a young girl, uh, maybe in uh, junior high, and she's really smitten for some guy, and she's writing his name on her hand and on her notebooks and so on. God said, that's how it used to be. When we first were engaged, betrothed, all you could talk about was me. You love me so much. What has happened? What have I done that your heart is cooled towards me? God laments this. He laments it with any believer who was once on fire for him with passionate honeymoon love and has now grown cold um, and, and, and has kind of drifted away. Look, let me just tell you this. The worst thing that can happen to any relationship, whether you're talking about your relationship with God or even your relationship with your spouse, is when you begin to take the other for granted and then drift apart from each other. The church at Ephesus, as they had drifted away from the Lord with love, they still kept serving like crazy. But it became mechanical, all right? And uh, the church at Ephesus fell into the trap of thinking that, listen, loveless service was enough to please the Lord. Now, bear with me. I have used this illustration before, so if you've heard it, just be patient. But um, they thought that just serving the Lord like crazy was all he really wanted. Uh, even though their heart had grown cold, they were still going through the motions, but again, lost the emotion. But they thought that was okay, that that would be okay with God. But, but I have said before, let me say it again, it would be like a wife who says to her husband, I don't love you anymore. I don't love you anymore. I have no feelings for you at all, but I'll stay married to you, and I will clean the house, and I will wash your clothes, and I will cook your meals. Look, what husband would be happy with a relationship like that? I didn't marry my wife so that I could have someone to cook my meals and clean my house. I could have, I could have hired people to do that. I married my wife because I fell in love with her and she with me. And now all the acts of service, listen, all the acts of service that she does for me are special. You know why? They're special and beautiful because I know. They are an expression of her love for me. But without the love, they'd be meaningless. They'd be meaningless. It's obvious that Jesus feels the same way and wants more than just service in our relationship with him. He wants passion, fire. He wants honeymoon, love. Remember, he's holding his church in his nail-scarred hands. Would speak of the ultimate act of selfless love, to lay down your life for the person you are in love with. Greater love is no man than that. The question is, what kind of love are you giving to Jesus in return? He has shown you. He has demonstrated how much he loves you. He died for you. What kind of love are you giving him in return? Look, I've said it before. Let me say it again. All Christians love Jesus, but not all Christians are in love with Jesus. And there is a difference. Again, I love my sister. I am in love with my wife. Very different kind of love, isn't it? When was the last time you told the Lord, I love you? I love you. And it wasn't tied to something you wanted from Him. It wasn't embedded in some kind of prayer request. You know, some marriages have so deteriorated that the words, I love you, 
are only used when couples want something from each other. Uh, maybe he wants sex or she wants, I don't know, a new piece of jewelry or something else, you know. Very sad when a marriage comes to that point where it, it, it just kind of degenerates to a point where love is just a word that's used to get things from the other. In Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus, he goes on to tell them, and of course us, he goes on to tell them what they needed to do, listen, to get back to first love or honeymoon love in their relationship with him. That brings us to the correction. Verse 5, Remember therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. First love, as Jesus is telling us, can be restored if we follow three instructions that Jesus gives us here. First of all, we must remember. Remember. Remember the love we used to have for him and cultivate a, des a desire to regain that close communion once again. You have to recognize something's going on here. You have drifted. You're not close to the Lord. You go to church, maybe you read your Bible. It's not the same. You're going through the acts of service and so on. But uh, you need to evaluate yourself and remember how it used to be, how you used to love the Lord and so on. And uh, then begin to cultivate a desire to regain that close communion again. Number two, we must repent. Repent, which means to turn around and forsake, listen, any relationship with anyone or anything that is competing in our hearts for the love that belongs to Jesus alone. Very important point. And then number three, we must repeat the first works. You say, well, what exactly does that mean, though? Well, as one pastor put it, what were you doing when you first fell in love with and were on fire for Jesus? You know, what was it like when you first fell in love? You first got saved. Uh, what were you doing? Well, I was going to church on a regular basis. Go again. Well, I was getting up early up early for morning devotions. Get up again. I sang praise to the Lord as I drove down the street. Well, sing again. The Lord Jesus said, remember, repent, and repeat. In other words, do your first works. That's the key to restoring your relationship with Jesus. Look, if your heart has grown cold in your relationship with the Lord, I'll be honest. I mean, he knows what's going on. He sees into the heart. He knows all things. But if after you do some honest self-examination and you can honestly say, no, I, I'm not really in love with the Lord like I used to be. I love him, but I'm not really in love with him as I used to be. Then you know what? What, are, what do we do when we need anything from God in the way of grace to be all that he wants us to be? You think he wants us to love us with a, a passion? Of course he does. We just talked about it. So what do you do if the passion's not there? Well, you pray and you ask him to light the fire of passionate love that once burned in your heart. Light it again. Light it again. God will never, uh, will never um, be upset with you. Will never look down on a person that says, Lord, I know I'm not what I should be in this area. I know I'm not what you want me to be. And this is a big one. I know I don't love you the way I should. I want to, Lord. I, I just don't know how to, you know, I need you to rekindle that love in my heart. That's called revival, folks. And only God can do that, all right? So you, you get on your knees constantly and fervently and you pray, Lord, revive me. 
revive me. I want to fall in love with you again. Lord, fill me with your spirit. And, and, and Lord, fill me with that love I once had. How can God turn you away with a request like that? He never will. Um, Lord, please light the fire of passionate love that once burned in my heart. Light it again that I might fall in love with you as my bridegroom. Because I'm your bride. Guys, it's not too late to rekindle honeymoon love. Some people think it's too late for me. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Jesus raised the dead. It was not too late for them. Well, your walk may seem dead, and uh, your passion for him might be cold, but again, he can raise the dead. He can bring revival to your heart. But pray fervently and continually until the fire falls. Let's finish up. Revelation 2, verse 5. Again, remember, therefore, from where, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, guys, in spite of the privileges uh, it had enjoyed, the church of Ephesus was in danger of losing not its salvation, but its light. What does that mean? Its witness. They were in danger of being put on a shelf is the idea. If they didn't repent, if they didn't come back to Jesus with all their heart, uh, then he was going to remove the light. He was going to put them on a shelf where they would no longer be serving him. It has nothing to do with the church losing its salvation. But they were going to lose their witness is the idea. And um, when he says, I will come, I will come, verse 5, it's not referring to his coming at the rapture. What he's saying is, I'm going to come to you in discipline. I'm going to come to you and discipline you uh, and discipline your church. If you don't repent and get this right with me, I'm going to come and discipline you by putting you on a shelf and um, taking you out of ministry, causing your light to be put out. Um, did they repent? Did things get fixed? Well, if you were to visit Ephesus uh, today in modern Turkey, uh, you would just find a, uh, a, a heap of stones where there's no light shining. There is no church. Now, interesting story, and we'll close. Oh, goodness, about four or five years ago, we were in uh, by the Grand Canyon on vacation, and my daughter Angela had a T-shirt on that said, uh, I love Jesus. And so a Middle Eastern-looking man walks up to her, introduces himself, and proceeds to tell her that he loves Jesus too and that he comes from the town uh, of Ephesus, well, close to the ruins of Ephesus, but he comes from that part of the world. And so th there is light still there. There isn't a church uh, giving off light, but there are individual points of light, individual believers, even in this area. And God loves the people of Turkey and uh, wants to save them and is saving them. So uh, that's an awesome thing to, to realize. Uh, next, uh, in the structure of the letter, we come to the call. The call, verse 7. And he who has an ear. Now, when Jesus says this, he's talking to people who are saved. Because once saved, they were given the ears of the Holy Spirit to understand, the, hear the voice of God, all right? So he realizes that churches are full of unbelievers. We're in the last days and the devil has sown a lot of tares in among the wheat in local churches. And when Jesus admonishes his church, often he says, and let him who has ears to hear. And that's just a way of saying, 
uh, all of you who are genuine believers, listen up. What I'm saying is very important. Don't miss this, is the idea. He who has ears, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not to this church alone. Look, all seven churches got all seven letters. Now that's important because it tells us that in any church, all seven of these things can exist at the same time, or even in an individual Christian. We can go through phases where maybe our love for the Lord is not what it should be, or we're compromising, or our walk is kind of dead, and so on and so forth. So all seven churches got all seven letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, all right? And then finally, we have the challenge. To, verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. A promise is held out to the overcomer, to the overcomer. Now, who is an overcomer? How does a person overcome? You think, well, I have to work really hard. I have to, you know, be go to church a, a, a lot, okay? No, no, actually, um, in 1 John 5, verse 5, it defines... Uh, who is the overcomer? He who believes in Jesus Christ is an overcomer. So uh, if you have put your faith in Christ and are a genuine born-again believer, you are an overcomer. So this is addressed to all true Christians, okay? To him who overcomes, because in any of these churches, you had a lot of unbelievers. And so Jesus addresses the true saints and says, to him, her, who overcomes... Um, I will give uh, to eat from the tree of life. Now, the tree of life is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. It was in the Garden of Eden. It later uh, reappears in the New Jerusalem, where it bears abundant fruit. You can read about that in Revelation 22, verse 2. And uh, those who eat of the fruit of this tree will never die, Genesis 3, verse 22. We'll talk about... We'll talk more about the tree of life when we get to Revelation chapter 22. So hang on to that. The paradise of God. I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is probably a name for heaven. I say that because in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, you remember how Paul said he was caught up to the third heaven? And he heard and, and, and saw things that were so incredible. He said, I, to write them down, I would only do them in injustice. So he's talking about heaven. First heaven is where the birds fly. Second heaven is where the planets are, the, the, uh, the, uh, the heavens where the sun and moon and all the stars and planets are. The third heaven is a reference to heaven, where God dwells, the angels dwell. And so the paradise of God is probably a name for heaven. Um, it will be identified as the new Jerusalem in the eternal state. And so let me just close by saying this, guys. The command to return to our first love leads the list. It leads the list of these seven churches, possibly because it's the most important of all that Jesus um, is critiquing each of these churches for uh, with regard to. But uh, the command to return to our first love is incredibly important in our relationship with and in our service for Jesus. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. Don't let this go in one ear and out the other. This is very important stuff. You pray. 
and ask God for grace that he will make it a reality in your relationship with Jesus once again, that he will place the fire of the Spirit within you. As I pray, he places within me. We are in the last days, and because evil is so uh, prolific and pervasive today, um, it does tend to cool off a heart for God because there's so much wickedness and people don't want to hear the gospel, it seems, and now they're fighting against true Christians and we're being persecuted now and it's going from verbal to now physical um, persecutions. I mean, we have to pray that God gives us the grace that in these last days, as we are in the home stretch, that we not waver, that we not fall by the wayside, that by God's grace we will endure, persevere, and uh, finish well in our race for Him, loving Him with all of our heart up until the moment we run right into His arms at the rapture and hear Him say, hopefully, well done, good, and faithful servants. So uh, next week, God willing, we will be in the second letter, uh, the letter to Smyrna. So uh, read that letter in advance and we'll study it next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are giving us a report card in a sense, that you are showing us through these seven letters uh, things that might not be right in our own lives and churches so that we might make corrections and confess these things and uh, by your grace make it right. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful evening.